0: Scripture text for Pastor Charlie's message today will be taken from Ephesians chapter two verses eleven through twenty two. Turn with me in God's word to Ephesians chapter two. Starting at verse eleven. built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets christ jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the lord in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for god by the spirit
1: let's pray how deep the father's love for us indeed lord it is vast beyond all measure No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth has ever seen the measure of the Father's love for us. Your mercy is as wide and broad and high and deep as your being. And so since you are infinite, your mercy, your love for us is infinite. Who can imagine a God who would send his son to die on a cross and take upon himself the punishment that is due to us? Who can imagine such mercy? Who can imagine such grace, O Lord? We cannot. But we give ourselves to You, Father. And we pray that You would help us to understand it a little bit more this morning. Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see, I pray. We haven't come here this morning, Lord, just to play church. We've come here to be in the presence of God Almighty. And we need You, Lord. Our spirits are willing, but our flesh is so weak. So we need You, Lord, to help us. We need you to open up our eyes. We need you to wake us up to the things of God and cause us to die to the things of the world. Lord, we are so prone to go back to our old ways and live in the ways that we should not live and forget the things of God. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So please help us, God. Please help us to see your glory and to love your glory and to live for your glory this morning. And it is in your great and gracious name that we pray all these things now. Amen. Therefore, remember, Paul says in Ephesians two, eleven. early on in my walk with the Lord, a pastor said to me and my wife said to me just this morning, whenever you see in the Bible the word therefore, you have to look and see what it's there for. Have you ever heard that? When you see a therefore, you have to look and see what it's there for. The word therefore implies that what I'm about to say is based on what I have just said. And if you're going to understand what I'm about to say, you have to grasp what I just said. So Ephesians 2.11 through 3.13 is one unit of thought, and that unit of thought begins with the words, therefore, remember. Therefore, Remember. Based on what I have just said, remember what I'm about to say. And we remember what Paul has just said. We spent many, many weeks talking about it. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is the story of the super abundant, vast, beyond measure, mercy of God. That's unexpected, inexplicable, and in fact, it's incomprehensible. It's just vast, beyond measure. It's the story of a gracious God who sent His only begotten Son into the world to take our punishment upon Himself, when we deserve nothing from Him but wrath and discipline and punishment. It's the story of a gracious God who not only in Christ forgave us our sins, but He made us alive together with Christ. He united us with Christ and raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. So that right this very moment, for those of us who are believers, we rule and reign with Christ in some measure. As Kevin talked about with Psalm 91, our feet too are on top of the serpent's head in Christ. So great is the mercy of God in our lives. Ephesians 2, 1-10 through 10 is the story of a God so gracious that He not only pours His mercy into our lives, but He actually creates of us vessels of mercy through which His love is now flowing into the worlds, And we who once were enemies of God and enemies of the cross now become the very means by which God touches the world with His grace and mercy. Therefore, remember. Therefore, remember. On the, on the foundation of the matchless mercy of God, remember what I am about to say, Paul pleads with us. My dad used to say that his forgetter was the best working part of his body. He, he uh, was a soldier. He had a rough time in his life. He treated his body not so well. He had a lot of broken parts. But he said that his forgetter was the best working part of his body. And I'm sure that you relate to that too. I'm always forgetting things all the time, even big things. In fact, that I was just thinking as we were worshiping, that's why I have this little note card in my pocket, because I, I need it to help me remember all kinds of stuff that I'm always forgetting. Our forgetters work really, really well. I remember the very first time in 1986 that I read the Bible. I got saved really out of the blue, and I just had such a passion to know God. And in about four months, I read the Bible from cover to cover. And I remember getting so frustrated with the Jewish people because they were constantly forgetting these huge things that God was doing. I mean, they saw God split the Red Sea in two. Can you imagine that? can you imagine being in a situation where you have to cross an ocean or you have to cross a big lake and the way that God does it for you is He he splits the thing in two and allows you to cross over just like you're on dry land. And they saw God. They saw the very glory of God on Mount Sinai and on that tent of meeting where Moses was. They actually saw it. They felt the shake of the thunder of the voice of God. And when they needed to enter into the promised land, how did God do it? They had to go through the Jordan River, and the Jordan River at that time was at flood stage. And how did he do it? Well, upstream he stopped the river up, and over a million people crossed the river as though on dry land, as though there wasn't even a river there. They saw God do amazing, miraculous things. And then what would happen? They would forget Him. They would walk in their rebellion. They would worship other gods. They would completely forget the Lord their God, and I would get so frustrated with these people. How could you do that? God just did these amazing things, and you just forgot all about it. And then I walked with the Lord for five years, and then 10 years, and then 15 years, and now by His grace, 20 and a half years, and I have seen in my own life how easy it is to forget the things of God. I have seen in my own heart how apt I am to forget all of the glorious truths that God is investing into my life. You relate with me? It's just so easy to forget the things of God. It seems to me that we're wired to forget everything that God would have us to remember. I love that old hymn. It's called, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. There's one particular verse that I love most. It says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter, like chains, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Prone to forget the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy thrones above. There's a man who felt the wandering nature of his heart, just so apt to forget the things of God. And brothers and sisters, for whatever reason, all of us are wired this way. We're just wired to forget the beautiful things that God would have us to remember. And so Paul begins this section by pleading with us, as it were. Therefore, remember. Therefore, remember. Make whatever effort you have to make. But remember. Rid your lives of the things that compete with your ability to remember, and remember the things of God. Remember these things. Remember these things. The verses that we're going to be studying over the next six or seven weeks, Ephesians 2.11-3.13, to 3, 13, are not simply a theological treatise on Jewish-Gentile relations. They may sound like that when we read them, but they're not. They are not just a theoretical presentation. On the contrary... These things are vital to our walk with God. These things are necessary to the health of our souls. These things are like a wind that will blow on the coals of our joy in God. They're like fuel that will be added to the fire of our passion for God. And so Paul pleads with us, and I plead with you as well, remember these things. Do whatever you have to do to cause yourself to remember the things of God. Work hard Work hard to cement them into your memory. Now specifically, what is it that Paul wants us to remember? I have two answers to that question. And I'm going to give you one answer this week. And if the Lord is willing, I will give you the other answer next week. My first answer to that question is this. Paul wants us to remember that before we were in Christ, we were utterly hopeless people. Paul wants us to cement into our memories and think about this fact that before we were in Christ, we were utterly hopeless people. Look with me at verses 11 through 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Let me comment quickly on two words in those verses, and then we'll, we'll get to the heart of what I think Paul is up to. The first word is, is the Gentiles. That word Gentiles in the original language of the Bible, which is Greek, is ethne. And you can hear in that word, can't you, our word ethnic. So the word ethne is behind our word Gentiles, and ethne refers, it literally means nations, but it, but it means not so much nation-states like the United States or Mexico or Canada or what have you. It, it means people groups. It means people who are culturally and linguistically united to one another. So an ethne, within a, a nation-state, there can be many ethne, there can be many people groups, like in Mexico. Mexico is one nation, but my wife was telling me yesterday that there are over 200 dialects spoken in Mexico. So many of those dialects form particular people groups, and that's what the word is really referring to. So when Paul calls us Gentiles in the flesh, or Gentiles by birth, what he's saying is every people group on the planet who is not Jewish. You have the Jewish people group, and you have every other people group. We are the Gentiles. Now, if you look there with me in the middle of verse 11, you'll see this term called the uncircumcision. You see that there? That was a a pejorative term that Jewish people used to refer to non-Jews in the first century and in that basic time of history. If any of you have grown up around Jewish people, you'll know that today, uh, even, they refer to non-Jews as goy or goyim. That's a Hebrew word that means the same thing as ethne does. It just means all non-Jewish people groups or the nations. And sometimes, even to this day, they'll use it as a a pejorative term. I had a good friend who grew up in a Jewish neighborhood, and they always teased him by calling him goy, goy, goy. And that's what this word is about. When Paul says, you who are called the uncircumcision, he means you who are being derided by that term. So with that in mind, let's read the verses again, and then we'll get to the heart of what Paul's up to in verses 11 through 12. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles or people groups in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, in other words, the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So what is it that Paul wants us to remember? Well, the very first thing that he brings up is who we were before we were in Christ. So he obviously wants us to think long and hard and remember who we were before we were in Christ. He gives us four specific things. Number one, he says, before we were in Christ, we were separated from Christ himself. Not from the idea of Jesus, but we were separated from Jesus Christ himself, who is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things. Friends, we were completely cut off from Him. We had no access to Him. We had no hope ever of approaching Him and being in fellowship with Him. Number two, Paul says, before we were in Christ, we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now what does that mean? What that means is that we did not have citizenship in Israel. We did not have the rights and privileges of citizenship in the nation of Israel And what's the big deal about that? Well, number three, Paul says, before we were in Christ, we were strangers to the covenants of promise given to Abraham and Isaac and Moses and to King David and to the prophets. We were completely estranged from all these things. Today, as a Christian man, as a man who, by the grace of God, is in Christ, I can read the whole Bible and many of its promises I can claim as my own. I've been reading the book of Nehemiah lately, and I love the book of Nehemiah. There are such great and glorious truths there, and many of them I can claim as my own. I can say with King David today that the Bible is sweeter to me than honey. It's more precious to me than silver. It's more precious to me than gold. And I really mean that. You can have all the wealth in the world... Give me the Bible. I love, except for God Himself, there's nothing more in the the world that I love more than the Bible. And I can say that today because I'm in Christ. But before I was in Christ, listen now, the entire Bible was null and void for me. It was completely null and void for me. And so it was for all of us before we were in Christ. We were alienated from Israel, from citizenship in Israel. And therefore, we were strangers to the covenants of promise that God gave to Abraham and to Mosek, Moses and to Isaac and to Jacob and to David and to the prophets. And then in light of all this, Paul just sums it up like this. Here's how he diagnoses our state before Christ. Before we were in Christ, we were absolutely without hope and we were without God in the world. You Gentiles in the flesh before Christ had No hope and were without God in the world. So the first thing that Paul wants us to remember, he wants us to cement this in our minds somehow, is that before Christ, we were separated, alienated, strangers to the covenants of promise who had no hope and were without God in the world. That's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? I don't know how much bleaker you get than saying you were without hope and you were cut off from God. There is no more bleak picture. It's a harsh assessment, but it's a true assessment as well. And I'll tell you something. One of the things that I love about God the most is that He is passionately committed to telling us the truth about ourselves. He will always tell us the truth. We read the verse earlier, John one fourteen. It says, Jesus Christ came into the world full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ came into the world to seek and save sinners like you and like me. He came into this world to forgive us our sins, but in order to do that, he had to tell us the truth about ourselves. Jesus Christ has an unwavering commitment to tell us the truth, and I love that about him. The world is not like Jesus. The world is not going to tell us the truth about ourselves, is it? The world wants what it wants from us, And so the world will tell us whatever it has to tell us to get what it wants from us. Just think about all the things that you hear constantly in this culture. You deserve a break today. Go ahead. You're worth it. Have it your way. Obey your thirst. Just do it. Just do it. Just do it. It's telling you whatever it needs to tell you to get you to do what they want you to do. And what do they want you to do? The world wants us to do basically two things. Indulge our flesh, because that's what hopeless people do, right? If you're without hope in the world, what else is there but to indulge your flesh? So you might as well display the fact that you have no hope by indulging your every whim. And the second thing the world wants us to do is give, give them our money. Just do it. What do you think they're trying to get you to do? Just spend $100 on a pair of shoes. Just give us your money. The world will not tell us the truth. Period. End of story. And the devil will not tell us the truth. The Bible says that the devil is out to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Friends, you need to understand, the devil doesn't want to irritate you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to take you out. I heard a story this week of a man who just recently, just up and left his family. Left his wife, left his daughter. His wife has got a debilitating disease, and she needed his help just to get dressed and function. And he left her. His daughter is just about to get married. And you know what he said to her? He said, you can find someone else to walk you down the aisle. I'm telling you, the devil wants to destroy you. He doesn't want to irritate you. And that man is following in the ways of the devil. And the devil won't tell you the truth. He'll tell you whatever he's got to tell you to convince you to do what he wants you to do so that he can do his job, and that's destroy your life. And not only the world and not only the devil, but even ourselves. We won't tell ourselves the truth, will we? We are very good at deceiving ourselves. The Bible says, I think it's in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. It says that the heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately sick. The heart, my heart right here, is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately sick. We are so good, aren't we, at convincing ourselves of what we need to be convinced of so that we can do what we want to do and get what we want to get. We're really good at subtly deceiving ourselves and others to fulfill our own desires. Friends, we will not tell ourselves the truth. The world, the devil, our our very selves will not tell us the truth. But God Almighty will tell us the truth. He has an unwavering commitment to tell us the truth. Even when it's hard for us to hear, He will tell us the truth. Even when we rebel against what He's saying, He will, in His mercy, continue to tell us the truth. I hope that in your life, you come to cherish the fact that God Almighty will tell you the truth. Even if it makes you uncomfortable, even if it makes you tremble in His presence, even if you don't like Him for it, He will tell you the truth. And that is a greater gift than we might know that we have in the world. And the truth is, according to Ephesians two eleven through 12, that before we were in Christ, we were separated, alienated, strangers to the covenants of promise who had no hope and were without God in the world. If you're not a Christian this morning, that sentence describes your life. And for those of us who are Christians, before we were in Christ, that sentence is descriptive of our lives. This is not just theological game playing. This is not just philosophy. This is truth, friends, and we need to remember it. Paul is pleading with us, remember this, remember this, remember this. Remember who you were before you were in Christ. It's crucial for your spiritual help, health. So remember this. Now, how did we come to be in such a deplorable state as this? How did we get to be in a place where Ephesians two eleven through 12 would be true of us? I have two answers to that. Number one, we came to be here because of the hardness of our own hearts. We got ourselves into this mess. It wasn't the devil, it wasn't the world, it wasn't because our parents raised us the wrong way. It was because of the corruption in our own hearts. We were responsible. Look with me if you will. Just turn about a page over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter four, verses seventeen through nineteen. Ephesians four, seventeen. Through nineteen. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God. And why is that, Paul? Because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous And have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Well, I'll tell you, I relate to those verses so much. That is exactly what I was like before I was in Christ. I was so greedy to give myself to everything that God hates. And before we were in Christ, that's the way all of us were. We were in such a deplorable state because of the hardness of our own hearts. Because of our love of impure things. Because of our love of everything that God hates and our hatred of the things that God loved, it was because of the rebellion inside of us. We willfully sinned and therefore we were cut off from God. I believe in the doctrine of original sin. I believe that every human being is born into sin. But I believe that every single human being is responsible as well for their own sin. And there's not one of us who has not sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are the main problem with us. I watched a documentary this week of of, of a sheriff in Arizona who's a pretty tough guy, I suppose. And he went into the jail, and he was interviewing some of the inmates. and, And to a person, every one of them was blaming everyone else in the world for why they were in jail. No one was taking responsibility. And that's what that sheriff said. He said, listen, you might not like it here, but you put yourself here. And it's time that you took responsibility for what you did. And it's not just people who are in jail who have this propensity to excuse themselves. It's all of us. It's me. I do it all the time. I'm constantly looking to excuse myself and justify what I've done. But we have to face this fact. Primarily why we are who we are is because of the corrupt nature of our own hearts. The second reason why we were in such a deplorable state was because of a choice that God made. It was because of a choice God made. God, in His desire to make a way for us to be saved, chose the Jewish people out of all the nations on the earth. He gave to them His covenants of promise through Abraham and Moses and David. And to some extent, He excluded the rest of us from the plan. God chose the Jews out of all the nations, gave them the covenants of promise, gave them the law, And to some extent, he excluded the rest of us. Now, this does not mean that God completely forsook all of the other nations on the earth. Quite to the contrary. God continued to bless and to keep and to make his face shine on the nations of the earth to some extent. And for those of you who have read the Old Testament, you'll know that the Bible is filled with examples of God's activity in the lives of other nations, even blessing some other nations. One that's coming to my mind right now is is Nineveh. You remember the book of Jonah and how God sent his prophet to a Gentile nation to get them to repent, and they did. So God was not completely forsaking all other nations because he's a gracious God, but God did take the Jews as a special possession for himself, and God did bless the Jews in ways that he did not bless any other nation on the earth. Look with me on the screen, if you will, at Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6. God says, Now therefore, if you, Israel, will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. All of the peoples of the earth belong to God, and he did continue to rule over us and reign over us and even be Gracious to us because he's a kind and merciful God. But out of all the nations of the earth, God chose Israel as his treasured possession, as a kingdom of priests, and as a holy nation. Now, why did God look at all the nations of the earth? There are today, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 15,000 people groups. Why did God look at all those people groups and choose the Jews? Here's my answer. First of all, God chose the Jews because He wanted to choose the Jews. He chose the Jews because it pleased Him to do so. Look with me on the screen at Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 through 8. The Lord says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. In other words, you were the least of peoples, not the most. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God chose these people... Because he wanted to choose these people. It was nothing in them that was commending themselves to God. It was nothing they had done to make themselves more valuable than the rest of the peoples of the earth. It was simply a gracious and loving choice that God made. They were but a slave people. And God, in his mercy, chose them above all other peoples. And you know, God still does things this way today. God chooses whomever he will for whatever reasons he will. He doesn't choose us because anything in us commends ourselves to him. He chooses he chooses us just because he chooses us. It's his free, sovereign, divine choice. Look with me at first Corinthians chapter one, verses twenty six through thirty one. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. In other words, think about the church. And think about the people who make up the church. Just so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the reason, first of all, that God chose the Jews was because He wanted to choose the Jews. He took a foolish thing And he used it to shame the wise. He took a very weak thing, and he used it to shame the strong. You have to picture this. The Jewish people were in the midst of the great and mighty nation of Egypt. This is Egypt, the land of the the pharaohs, the mighty pharaohs that we're still talking about to this day. Thousands of years later, they were in the land where the pyramids were made. They were in the land of the greatest philosophers and thinkers in the world and God chose to despise Egypt and reject Egypt and bring shame to Egypt and choose a slave people that were in Egypt, it would be like if God chose the African-American peoples 150 or 200 years ago rather than the mighty United States of America. He's a great and gracious God, and He chooses weak things and foolish things so that through them He can display His own strength and His own wisdom, and no one will be able to boast in the Lord. The Lord God Almighty chose to choose because He wanted to choose the Jews to display His power and His strength. Number two, and the main reason why God chose the Jews out of all the nations of the earth was to prepare for Himself a people who might receive Jesus Christ, the King of glory, into the world. Mike and I were just talking about this this morning, how I think we've become so familiar with Jesus Christ, or at least who we think Jesus Christ is, that I think we've lost sight of who He actually is. I don't think there's a person in this room, including me, that even comes close to grasping who Jesus Christ actually is. Jesus is great beyond our imagination, He's vast and powerful beyond measure. He's holy all the way to the core of His being. There's no shifting shadow, no darkness in Him, not even an infinitesimal amount of unholiness in Him. He is pure holiness. He is pure power. And it was not a small thing, friends, for Jesus Christ to take on flesh and come into the world and dwell among us. That was not a small thing. And so God chose one people out of all the peoples in the earth to prepare them, to purify them, that He might send the King of glory into their midst and that that King of glory might make a way for all the nations to be saved, to have their sins forgiven, for them to be reconciled to God. And You know, one thing that amazes me about God and His ways is that He doesn't seem to feel obligated even in the slightest measure, to let His people know the fullness of what it is that He's up to in their lives. He just calls them to do what He calls them to do, and He expects them to follow Him and to obey them. Think about this with me. When God chose Abraham as the father of the promises, and as the father of faith, and gave him the promises, God did not sit down with Abraham and explicitly tell him that the meaning of all these promises was that Jesus Christ, the King of glory, was going to come into the world and fulfill them all. God didn't tell Abraham that. He just gave him the promises and said, Abraham, obey me. Go to a land and I'll show you when you get there. And Abraham obeyed. When God chose Moses and gave him the law, God did not sit Moses down and tell him in detail that the end of the law was Jesus Christ that the King of Glory would one day come into the world and fulfill all of this stuff, that it was all pointing toward Him. He just gave Him the law and expected obedience. When God chose Joshua out of all the people and led him to lead the people into the Promised Land, God did not sit down and explicitly tell Joshua, Joshua, one day, the feet of Jesus Christ, the King of Glory, will walk on the land that you're about to conquer One day, Jesus Christ, the King of glory, will give his life in one of the cities that you're about to conquer. God didn't tell Joshua what he was up to. He just gave him the commands and said, Obey me, Joshua. Obey me. Obey me. When God called King David to rise up and lead his people and to write so many of those wonderful psalms that we read and sing and love to this day, he did not sit down and explicitly tell David David, one day, Jesus Christ, the King of glory, will come from your line and He will sit on your throne forever and ever. Certainly, there were hints about this all along the way. Kevin, you even mentioned one this morning in uh, Genesis 3.16, I think it is. There were hints all along the way that Jesus Christ would come. There were promises about Him. There were prophecies about Him. But what I'm saying is for the most part, the people didn't get it. God was subtle in His ways with His people, and to this day, He is subtle with us. He does not feel obligated to let us know in great detail what He's up to. When He chose the Jewish people, He just chose the Jewish people, and He gave them commands and expected them to obey Him and to trust Him. And He does the same thing with us today. I'm convinced that we have no idea of the greatness and the glory of the things that God has in mind for us, We have no clue how glorious an end that God will make of all this. We have no clue. And so God just says, Understand me the best you can. Love me, serve me, and obey me. Trust me. Just think if Abraham could have trusted the Lord, and if Moses and the other people could have trusted the Lord, they would have spared themselves so many grievances. Oh, that we might learn to joyfully trust God when we can't see where everything is leading. One of my spiritual fathers used to say, he said, you can trust the heart of God when you cannot trace His hands. So when you don't know what God is up to in the end, you can still trust His heart. And that's my final lesson for us today. Let us trust the Lord and simply obey Him, knowing that He has our very best in mind. And one day, Romans 8 will become very real to us, For he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. One day, friends, we will see that with our eyes. And we will say, hallelujah, and blessed be the name of the Lord. He's good, and he leads his people in good paths. Paul's diagnosis of us before we were in Christ is pretty bleak. He said that we were separated, alienated strangers of the covenants of promise who had no hope and were without God in the world. And we were in this situation because of the hardness of our own hearts and because of a choice that God made to work with the Jews. Next week, we will talk about what happened when God sent Jesus into the Jewish culture and what God did through that both horizontally, socially, and what He did through that vertically between us and Himself. But for right now, let us dwell on this. Let us remember who we were before we were in Christ. Paul is telling us, he's pleading with us, and saying, if you will remember who you were before you were in Christ, it will be joy for you, and it will be glory for God. So therefore, remember, brothers and sisters, therefore, remember, do whatever you have to do this week to cement these things in your mind, and remember who you were before you were in Christ. The bleakness of that picture becomes a backdrop against which God will paint beautiful things with His mercy and His grace, His glory and His love. So therefore, remember these things. Let's pray. God, I can't help but feel grieved about who we were before we were in Christ because we got ourselves into that situation. It's the hardness of my heart that is responsible for all of the things that I have done and all of the evil that has befallen me. It is the hardness and the sickness of my own heart that caused you to have to nail your son to the cross. And so, along with your church, Lord, I grieve at who we were. But Lord, in anticipation of what we'll talk about next week, we rejoice in who you are. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would send his only son to make this wretch his treasure. Oh, thank You, Father, for Your great mercy that has poured down upon us. And Lord, how I pray that You would help us now as we go back into the world. Help us, Father, not to forget the things we have heard here. Help us not to forget the things we have seen here. Help us not to be so inundated and given to the things of the world and to the things of our own flesh that we just ignore the things that You would have us remember. Oh, God, please help us. For the most part, our spirits are willing... But our flesh is so weak, Lord. We're so susceptible to temptation and to distraction. So would you, Lord Jesus, by your mighty power and your outstretched arm and by the grace that is in your heart, cover us with your pinions and let us find refuge under your wings. Protect us from the things of the world, O Lord, and cause us to remember the glorious things of your kingdom. We give you the rest of this day and we give you our very selves now in the mighty and merciful name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.